0: Welcome to
1: Fabulously Keto Episode Zero Zero Six, and this week we are interviewing Dr. Chris Barclay. Now, Jackie, you met Chris at the PHC conference last year, is that right? Yep, yeah, two thousand and
2: nineteen. He had a stand there, and he was um, showing his all his data and the work that he's doing, and he was telling me about his he was writing a book.
1: Oh, that's really exciting. Um, I know that Jackie worked the room when I wasn't with her, so she got to meet some really interesting people, as you do at these um, low carb conferences, and mingling um, over the uh, delicious buffet table with all those low carb um, delicious foods. And one of the best things about the PHC conference. And shout out to to Sam, felt them for the for the catering is obviously having um, having cream at the coffee stand. So that was a real highlight. <laughs>
2: and I wasn't drinking anything except water at that time. No tea, no coffee.
1: Oh, no, you're, you're one dedicated, um, hardcore lady. But, um, yeah, back to the conference. So you met Chris and he was obviously there at the conference. They had a range of scientific um, presentations as well as obviously the lectures. But um, there were people there with their posters, um, academic posters, uh, presenting their results of their findings of their research, which was really good to wander in the breaks.
2: Yeah, Yeah, there was a lot of good stuff there. I met lots of interesting people as well.
1: Hmm. So I know that obviously um, coming up we will have Sam on the podcast um, from the PHC UK, and uh, so he'll be able to tell us more about that. But um, in the meantime, why don't you tell us a bit more about Chris? Sure. So Chris was brought up
2: in Ipswich. He qualified as a doctor at Sheffield University in 1978. The very same year, he got married and Ipswich won the FA Cup. So that was a rather good year for him. Uh, He worked for two years in, in Sierra Leone before returning to Sheffield to start speciality training in obstetrics and gynaecology. He swapped over to general practice in 1999. Chris Barkley is currently a GP and medical writer. His special interest in diet and health began with a chance encounter. A patient told him how he had lost weight by cutting out carbohydrate foods. Chris has researched the subject ever since. He was principal investigator for the Azaya Project, a diet trial in pre-diabetic patients. His conclusion? Processed carbs, starchy foods and sugar are the problem. They are driving our diabetes epidemic. In his book, Beating Diabetes the Low-Carb Way, Chris presents compelling and persuasive evidence and translated it into a practical and effective plan. Chris has written regularly for medical magazines, the most recent being The Practitioner magazine. He is the lead writer for MAPS, a drug information website to help healthcare organizations, mainly hospital trusts, provide reliable, easy to read information on medicines that can be printed for patients to take away. Again, translation work. He worked for many years as a GP in Sheffield before moving back to Suffolk. He has worked most recently as a GP in Aldborough. His new book, Beating Diabetes, The Low-Carb Way, collects the fruits of his research and inquiries in one place.
1: I'm sure the listeners will really enjoy our conversation, uh, which will be over two episodes. So um, we're going to be rolling the tape for episode one, and we'll catch up with the listeners at the end of that. Welcome, Chris, to the Fabulous keto podcast. How are you today?
3: I'm good, thanks. Yep, no problems.
1: That's good. Um, So we normally start our podcast with asking our guests, well,
3: where are you? Well, I'm sat, as you can see, in my kitchen dining room, uh, and that's located in a small pink cottage in Suffolk. Pink is a a traditional colour for cottages in Suffolk. Uh, It's in the east of England. So I'm sat at home in my rural idyll as we speak.
1: And it does actually, I'm admiring all the cooking um, your pots and pans that are hanging off the roof of your of your kitchen—I can see yeah. that on Zoom—and the the very colourful African violets—they were actually a feature in my mother's kitchen as well. So maybe oh. it's um. Oh, it's I've
3: beautiful. got strict. I've got strict instructions to keep away from the foliage. I, I'm not to damage it. So.
0: <laughs> yeah, my grandma always had African violets. Oh. So
1: it must be a kitchen thing because they sort of obviously flourish in the in the warm the warm air.
3: Yeah, well, with the lockdown, my wife has been an integral part of the garden for several months now, and it's looking fantastic, and she's got green fingers, so n- nothing to do with me. Fantastic. Okay.
1: Well, each to our talents, so if your talents are not gardening, uh, maybe you could sort of start with, well, you know, what what led you to a low-carbohydrate or a, or a keto a keto journey?
3: Uh well, it's uh, I've, I've been on this journey for about 20 years. It, it all began one day. I had a patient come in to see me. Uh, this is when I was working in Sheffield. And uh, it was a blood pressure check. It took five minutes. We got another five to 10 minutes to go. I thought I'd give him his money's worth, so to speak. So I sort of casually asked in a non-directive way, as we're trained to do, uh, is your weight steady then? and he said no i've just lost two stone now at that point uh, i thought to myself there's something seriously wrong here he's obviously very ill i'd better probe a bit more and so it turned out that he wasn't ill in fact he never felt better and what he'd done was buy a book and did what it said and he lost weight and that book was the fabulously titled dine out and lose weight by someone called Michel Montagnac you you may never have heard of it no he's a very patrician or was he's died since then he's a very patrician French guy uh, with um, a love of high French cooking and he discovered something called the glycemic index something I had never heard of before this was in about the year 2000. Uh, So I was interested I, I, I suppose I should reel back and say Tell you about my nutritional training as a doctor uh, and it was nil. We got no nutritional training whatsoever. I qualified at a time that the nutritional guidelines were changing from traditional eating patterns to the time when the low-fat, low-cal stuff came in in the late 70s, early 80s and I just absorbed it uh, with, as with everybody else. Um, I didn't think about it, I was told that was what it was. Um, the people who were overweight obviously weren't managing their calories in and calories out and I just thought it sounded logical uh, all the people who are overweight I assume must just be kidding themselves or kidding me or both of us and in fact at that time I didn't even realize I was overweight myself it just didn't impinge it wasn't on my radar but anyway I read Michel Montagnac's "Dine Out and Lose Weight uh, and I was really quite amazed. As I say, I discovered the glycemic index and I started to think about it. And I thought, you know, this could help me. Uh, this could help my patients who are overweight. Uh, perhaps I ought to find out more. So I started doing a bit more reading. There wasn't much out there at the time. I discussed it with one of my partners at work who was a physicianly lady who ran the diabetes clinic she'd never heard of the glycemic index in fact nobody had heard of the glycemic index as far as i could see for those of you who are a lot younger that's basically a way of ranking carbohydrates and how much sugar they put in your bloodstream Mm. so bread is and potatoes are high and bacon and eggs is low for example anyway i discovered this then as i thought about it i thought you know this could help my diabetic patients too So around that time, the NHS put out some documents saying we need to be more proactive about diabetes. And in particular, people in primary care like myself should identify those with risk factors, not that they specified what they were, and that we should then make interventions that would make a difference. And they didn't specify what they were either. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, do you know, this low GI approach might help my diabetic patients too. And it might then chime with this guidance from the NHS. So I then went to see my local academic professor in primary care and said, can you get me some money so I can have some time out and study this? And he said, oh, better than that. Why don't you join our department on a part time basis and do a clinical trial? And foolishly, I suppose, in retrospect, I agreed. Mm -hmm. uh, And I, I gathered over a period of a couple of years, a team together. We worked out a program very similar to the current programs that are being run now. Uh, and I did it with my own patients in uh, in Sheffield. It, it was a practice in a leafy suburb and it's an affluent area, very affluent area. And yet we had no problem finding 40 uh, odd patients with t- uh, pre-diabetes. That's what we were looking for. Not even diabetics, pre-diabetics. Anyway, I set up a program. It was evening meetings, a series of six meetings. I had four groups. Two were low carb and two were low calorie, low fat. And we ran them through and we collected the data. It was a pilot study. In other words, it wasn't there to see, did a low carb diet work? It was to see, could the intervention, could the program that we were working up work in practice? And the answer was, yes, it could. Uh, And even with small numbers, we found that the low carb group or low GI group did better than the uh, low fat, low calorie group, even on small numbers. And we thought, right. Oh, by the way, that was called the Isaiah program isaiah is an acronym for insulin sensitivity and its applications to health sounded good Uh, and even then you see insulin was at the key to all this it was actually at the core and we we ran the isaiah program through i worked very closely with a nutritional scientist called kim edwards who i think now is in nottingham and we had great plans for isaiah going large and isaiah how can it help people on a budget and what about uh, children who are increasingly getting problems with it but We couldn't get funding. It wasn't a sexy new drug. There was no money to be made. And in fact, if anything, money would be saved because people would start to come off their diabetes medicines uh, or at least reduce them. And we just couldn't get funding. So Isaiah went into hibernation. We couldn't progress it to the large numbers. We were looking for a study to do about 600 people. Couldn't get money for it. So that was that uh in the uh, so that paper was published in 2008 which was roughly when Isaiah succumbed but I kept it going in my own mind so I've been researching on it and thinking about it I enjoy writing so I've been writing about it ever since um and that's how I came here today uh I great. hope that's answered your question yeah great yeah
1: and so that's led to your book
3: ah well that's another story uh I was really intrigued by how we got into the mess we got into, you know, when um, in the United States in the late seventies, early eighties ch- changed nutritional advice, turned it on its head basically. And the more I looked at it, the more uh, I thought, well, it just doesn't add up. It, it's it, it, from that very moment in history is when the graph showing obesity and type two diabetes took a sudden lurch upwards and they've been going up ever since. So it hasn't worked. And I, I, Got to thinking. Well, how did this happen? And I, I, I wrote a book, um, which was basically the history of the pandemic, uh, going back. You know, looking at prehistory, uh, the kind of Paleolithic era, uh, but most importantly, over the last couple of hundred years, when science started taking over nutrition rather than. Chefs, basically, yeah, and it wandered its way through all sorts of things like when did low cal diets come in, and what about sugar beet growing, and there was all sorts of stuff, and I really enjoyed writing it. But after I'd finished it, I realised that this was this this was the sequel, and uh, I really ought to do the prequel, and so the prequel was basically a summary of all the stuff I've done with my own patients. Uh, expanded and embellished over the last 20 years. So it's my, in my grand moments, called my repository of wisdom. Um, but it's all there, basically. Uh, and I've, I have really enjoyed, if nobody buys the book, I'm not that bothered. Well, I am, but uh, I'm not going to be too bothered because it was the writing process that I enjoyed.
1: Right. So is it is the book targeted to healthcare professionals or is it a, a patient
3: guidebook? It's basically for patients who can afford to buy a book. Now, that might exclude a load of people, but it, it, this is a particular niche I think I'm able to push forward. Is it for healthcare professionals? Well, yes, it is, because actually, most of the health professionals I've come across are completely unaware of the whole low carb principles and how effective it can be. Um, and in fact, if you look at uh, healthcare workers and look at their body weights. They're just as overweight as the general population. So actually, it's a book for them. I I would hope it would sneak in uh, without them realising it. They might read it uh, on behalf of their patients, and it might impinge on them. And when I've given talks, I've always had it in mind, if I'm giving talks to healthcare professionals, that the people who are really going to prick their ears up are those who are pre-diabetic, early diabetic, and very overweight, because it's personal for them. So it's a bit of both. Yeah.
1: So I suppose I suppose you've heard of the um I suppose it's the jungian theory about the wounded practitioner. So the actual the person that has been or is or has a personal journey that they then give to their to their patients. So those practitioners in a reflective practice way, you know, they understand the nature of the the patient lived experience to which they as a practitioner give on to their um onto their patient care.
3: Absolutely. I've not heard that before. Uh, But it chimes with what I've kind of thought about during my own practice. And, you know, if you've experienced particular things in your own life, and I'm thinking bereavement here, you can stand by something, somebody and say, you know, I know how you're feeling. And if they say, no, you don't, you can say, well, actually, yes, I do. Um, And I'm sure there are many other uh, things where your your own practice can be informed by your own uh, experiences. Yeah.
1: So going back to having that particular one patient who came in and, and lost that, that weight and you read the book, mm-hmm. what did that do for you? So did you go, you said, you said that you bought the book, you read the book, did you implement that particular um, low glycemic eating?
3: Yes, I did. Uh, I, I, I read around uh, quite a lot. As I said earlier, it uh, it occurred to me that I was overweight and I hadn't even noticed. And uh, I was fitting well, but uh, podgy. So uh, I just started cutting out the high GI carbohydrates. I found another book that I found quite good at the time. It was called The New High Protein Diet by Charles Clark. And I found that very doable. He gave many suggestions. He gave recipes. He explained it nicely. In fact, it wasn't a high protein diet. It was, it was a, a low carb diet, actually. Uh, and I did that, and that worked, and I got quite a few of my patients to buy the book and have a read of it, and it worked for them too.
1: So was at that time, like, Atkins still a dirty word? Like, you know, Atkins, uh, too much it, bacon and fat and saturated fat
3: was bad? Yes, indeed. He, he was a bit of a figure of ridicule. In fact, in many ways, he was quite right. He was on the right track. And just at the early part of my sort of studies on this, right about 2003, I remember people being absolutely shaken because there were two large papers published in the New England Journal of Medicine comparing an Atkins style approach with a standard dietary advice approach and it outperformed them at every level and mm. uh, people thought well this can't be true but there were actually two papers on different groups of patients in the same I think it was the same number or consecutive numbers of the journal uh, and uh, he, I don't think he was ever really rehabilitated he, he had a a strange approach he wouldn't share his data um but he i think he had a lot that was going on for him that was quite right and again his diet his well, in several phases is what i would have called now rather grandly again an insulin modulating diet i i reckon diets mm. fall into two groups i mean they're always the wacky ones at the edges but A lot of them are about calories. Uh, And if you're going to give that a jargon name, you could call it the thermogenic diets. It's all about energy conservation and what have you. And that's the current advice in the UK. Uh, Calories in, calories out. Um, uh, But then there's a whole lot of other diets. Charles Clark's new high protein diet, the Atkins diet, and many others since then. Uh, are what I would call metabolic diets. Uh, they're insulin modulating because they say the problem isn't an energy balance. The problem is hormonal. And in fact, I often used to listen to patients who would say, it's not my fault, doctor, um, that I'm overweight. It's my glands. It's my hormones. And we used to say rubbish. It's, you know, what you're eating. But in fact, I believe they're right. The gland is the pancreas. The hormone is insulin. Yeah. Uh, we can come on to more of that later, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, so you're sort of using this this term, and I suppose for the listeners, insulating, sorry, insulating, insulin modulating. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose suppose that, you know, the insulin is insulating in the pancreas, but so insulin modulating. Yeah, it's a bit of a mouthful. Bit of a mouthful, but for the listeners who may not know what you mean by that, what what do you mean?
3: Okay, well, uh, in that first book, the sort of road to, planet diabetes, if you want to call it that, Um, I I look right back into how we evolved. We we evolved as a species about 240,000 years ago, something of that order. And for the first, well, the first three quarters of our existence on this planet, we were all stuck in Africa and then we started to move out. But farming only really occurred in the last 10,000 years. So if you had a 24 hour clock, farming began at 11 p.m. at night first animals that were domesticated you know sheep and goats cattle perhaps that wasn't until about quarter past 11 at night you know all the rest of our history we uh, we were hunter-gatherers we we foraged in fact we were very low carb people because there wasn't much of carbohydrate out there stringy fruit a few tubers perhaps some berries honey if you can get it A little bit in if you eat liver, there's a small amount of carbohydrate in that. But basically, we were on a high-fat, high-protein, low-carb diet. That's that's what humanity uh, evolved to eat until 11 o'clock at night, on that 24-hour clock. Now, in all that time, uh, insulin was at a very low level in our bloodstreams because we didn't need to uh, be squirting it out into our bloodstreams to control the glucose surges because there really weren't very many glucose surges, and and when there were glucose surges, suppose a fruit tree uh, was in, uh, the season was around, that you could gorge yourself on fruit. Or if you came across some honey and your blood sugar went shooting up, insulin kicked in and it converted most of that glucose into fat. And that's its job. And it was a lifesaver back in those days because maybe next month, It was a lean month and there wasn't much food around. And that little fat store might just keep you going until you found your next Mm. meal. So that's what insulin's job was. and Maybe we would have an insulin surge, I guess, a few times a year. Now, today, we have insulin surges many times a day. Six times a day. Maybe, you know, you Mm. get up, you visit the fridge and think, I better have some nice healthy fruit juice to start the day and freshen me up. And instantly you've got several teaspoons of sugar into your bloodstream. And it carries on We're stacking uh, a lot as well. They're usually carb type snacks. Uh, We eat several meals a day. We might even have some rounds of toast before we go to bed at night. And so instead of having insulin a few times um, a year, we're having these surges many times every day. And so we're now insulin dominated. And insulin still has the same job to, to do as it did back then, it takes that glucose and turns it into fat. It does other things too, of course. We might come on to insulin resistance in a minute. But yeah. that's where the insulin-modulating diet's kind of grand phrase came from.
1: That sort of is really contrary to the, the calories in, calories out method, or the, the hypothesis of, you know, that we eat, what we eat we need to expend plus more if we want to lose weight. So that, that sort of thermodynamic equation of in and out is meant to be balanced. Yeah.
3: Um, uh, there's certainly a lot of people go back to was something called the Minnesota Starvation Trial. You may have heard of that run by a chap called Ansel Keys. This was back in the the 1940s during the war, and they wanted to find out what happened to young men, because they were interested in their own troops who were about to enter Europe. What happened to young men if they went on a low calorie diet? And low calorie was around about 1600. And they had these volunteers uh, secluded away for about a year. So this was a really good trial. And they, they, they uh, watched what happened to them. What they found out is, of course, they lost weight because they were relatively starving. They dropped from something like 3,200 to 1,600 calories. So they're relatively starving. They were exercising a lot, but they didn't lose anywhere near the amount of weight that would have been predicted if it was a simple energy balance. You know, if 100 calories out mm. meant a certain amount of weight loss, It did not work like that. Their their metabolic rate slowed down. They would hardly moved. They became cold. Cold. Their bodies adapted to this low-calorie environment. And one of the problems is if you cut your calories, your body will adapt. And then to lose the next bit of weight, you have to cut a lot more because you're already in frugal starvation mode. So so I think the calories in, calories out, it doesn't seem to work. All right, there's always going to be the odd patient. I often say... No diet works for everyone, but every diet works for someone. Lucky them, perhaps. But in general terms, uh, it doesn't really work that well. I was watching a lecture by somebody recently, and he said there's a good reason that the uh, biggest loser doesn't have a reunion program. You know, they all lose colossal amounts of weight, but uh, they don't go back next year or the year after because they've all put it back on again. It's, mm. it's, a, it's the rut of failure, I call it.
0: Yeah, and it mm. messes up the metabolism for about three years, I think. You know? mm. so,
3: well, mm. uh, not just that, but if you really do go low calorie, um, you, you have to make glucose somewhere or other and you start burning up body proteins. And um, so you're, you're losing muscle effectively. And then when you uh, uh, re-feed yourself, instead of making new protein you just make fat so you get leaner and then you get fatter and leaner so at the same time Mm -hmm. but leaner as in muscle mass yeah
1: and that was the kevin hall study as well because didn't he sort of crunch the numbers from the biggest loser the actual the us program and he noticed how their metabolic rates actually sort of went down and all all but one actually maintained the weight um and i think because that person actually went um low carb as well so Um, And that was published in in Kevin Hall's um, article. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting, you know, as a way of explaining and any theory is only as good as obviously the hypothesis and this Mm -hmm. is obviously offering another explanation, another way that Mm -hmm. energy cannot be created or destroyed, but it is actually modulated by a particular hormone, as your patients were saying.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the other thing about that, law of physics it's not a theory of physics it's a law is uh, all right it can't be created or destroyed but it refers to what's called a closed system and the human body isn't a closed system you know uh, uh we, we're losing fluids we're transpiring fluids we're losing heat gaining heat there's so much going on and then there's the whole hormonal factor as well so i don't really i think it's a misuse of the laws of thermodynamics to uh, apply it to nutrition yeah,
1: And it was really good that, um, like Zoe Harkman explained it, you know, where you're sort of mentioning about heat loss and there's the thermogenic effect of food. So yeah. who knew that when you're actually digesting food that you're actually giving off heat? And so when she was at the PHC conference and she was explaining how these various components, it's not as simple as the calories in, calories out, but it's all these other Elements about you know basal metabolic rate, the thermogenic Mm -hmm. effect of food. That there is obviously this non incidental exercise effect. So just sitting and resting is actually part of that um, Mm -hmm. calorie equation as well. So it's it's not as not not as simple and equal as that. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And I notice even on my watch on days when I'm very sedentary and I'm sat here and I don't do very much. The, and compared to days where I might do some exercise, run a mile, do some taekwondo, the difference in calories is about three or four hundred calories mm. in the whole day. It's not a lot. It's
3: it's um, disappointingly pathetic. Yeah, <laughs> it's a couple of biscuits. So, or, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, three three hundred calories would be what three penguins? I suppose that's or, or the equivalent. Yeah. The Aussie qu- equivalent is is a Tim Tam. So I always remembered yeah. that there, there's eleven. Tim Tams in a in a packet, so that's eleven hundred calories. So and that used to be when I was a young woman; that would be my daily allocation, you know, eleven 1, yeah. hundred calories. So don't I think eat what, the whole packet.
3: The, the the whole exercise and weight loss. I mean, it's a factor, and I think it's a factor in two ways. One is, all right, you do burn a few calories, but uh, in doing so, you're actually burning off glucose that's stored in your muscles. Uh, that's glycogen. And when you next eat, your muscles will want to have their glycogen replenished. So in a way, it's it's like a sugar sump. It it takes some of it out of the bloodstream. That may have a little effect.
0: Do you think exercise alone can influence somebody's weight and health?
3: Uh, It's a small yes. Uh, Yes, I think exercise is good generally. It's a good thing for your heart circulation, almost certainly. But with regard to weight loss... Mm, you've got to exercise a huge amount to bu- burn any meaningful number of calories off. And often you feel hungry afterwards and then replace them. But yeah, exercise, you will, you will certainly lose uh, some calories during exercise. You're having to burn energy. Uh, maybe the benefits of that might be not so much in that you're burning calories, but that when your muscles are being active, you're burning some of the glucose stored in them. Uh, that's stored in the form of glycogen. And the next time you have a meal, the muscles will want to replenish that glycogen. So they pull some of the sugar out of your bloodstream to build up their glycogen stores again. And that may spare you a certain amount of uh, glucose that needs then to be dealt with by insulin. So again, get back to that word insulin modulating, it has an effect on your whole insulin metabolism. Yeah. If you look at some of the celebrity people who've done it, some have had massive weight loss and uh, they say they've done it through physical activity running or uh, a couple have said they do it through boxing i i don't know i'm i'm slightly suspicious about that and i suspect they're either doing a low carb diet or maybe they've had uh, bariatric uh, surgery or something like that as well that they may not feel comfortable disclosing Uh, because azim malhotra one of my heroes uh, he said in one of his uh, papers you cannot outrun a bad diet and yeah. I think he's right. Yeah,
0: I think it all helps, but it's not the overriding effect of what happens in our body and how we yeah. it tw- process
3: it can, the food. Yeah, it can tweak things a bit. But uh, again, if you look at exercise, you're starting to buy into the calories in calories out thing, which we know through numerous studies in the long term doesn't really work because overweight and diabetes type 2 diabetes are but two sides of the same coin and the underlying drive is hormonal it's your body chemistry it's not the quantity of your calories
1: so you've mentioning about diabetes and so it's so diabetes is obviously part of this big could be that metabolic syndrome so it's just obviously it's part of a bigger picture you're saying about the obesity so perhaps it's a little bit more nuanced than just diabetes is just high blood sugar and a high HB1AC, is that right?
3: Yes, uh, uh, that's precisely the point. Um, I I, I try to simplify things, and I've often, one of the things that cropped up in my mind a a year or two ago was this simple sequence like green, amber, red. It was cause, problem, and effect. And the first thing to look at was the amber bit, the, the problem of type 2 diabetes And there we have an issue because in my view, type two diabetes is about insulin. It's about having too much insulin early on. And and you also have a situation where the body just isn't responding to it as well, called insulin resistance. So insulin excess and insulin resistance is type two diabetes in its early stages. Mm. The effects of that are that you lose control of your blood sugar levels. Now, we as medics focus almost exclusively on what your blood sugar levels are doing and that longer term measure, your HbA1. But they are effects. They are not diabetes. They are the consequence of that disturbed insulin metabolism. Now, almost all the treatments, not all, but almost all of the medical treatments, drugs basically, are focused on blood sugar levels and your HbA1. And they don't major on the whole insulin problem. And and that's why uh, medical management doesn't really reverse diabetes. What it does is try to slow it up a bit. It's it's kind of letting out the rope as you go over the cliff slowly. Uh, It might hope to defer some of the complications of diabetes way into the future. But it doesn't reverse things because it's not looking at the problem which is an insulin problem. And it doesn't really look at the cause, which is our diets. Our diets drive the insulin problem and the insulin problem drives the sugar problems and the complications of diabetes. Um, So it it looks at things the wrong way around.
0: So why do you think um, doctors are not looking deeper and not looking into the insulin? And I'd love to know what my insulin levels are.
3: Uh, exasperated look on my face I don't know I, I know when I discovered going back 20 years all about glycemic indexes and and I found out more and more and I would explain it to my uh, colleagues and partners and nearly always they would say you know that makes perfect sense that explains it but then they carry on as normal and uh, the, the inertia in the system is massive and we're all set up to view things um, and in fact I. Our remuneration as GPs is often to do with how well we stick to the guidelines that are to do with prescribing and measuring the the effects. And there is no, there's no encouragement to look at the causes whatsoever. So I find it very difficult, even giving talks to large numbers of health professionals. You know, they say that was really interesting. And I understand that now, but it makes virtually no change. They, we just get back into our rut and keep on rolling. Uh, I I personally think that the medical profession is unlikely to get out that rut unless uh, us punters because I'm a patient too us punters start saying well look what's happened to me I've done this I've lost weight I'm off my meds how do you explain that doc Mm.
2: Uh,
3: and uh, unless there's a kind of people's revolution about it I don't think much is going to change very quickly it is starting to change I have to say um, the number of low-carb, aware people out there has mushroomed over the last three or four years. All I can do is hope that, that um, the evidence that they're producing, the people like Zoe Harkam you mentioned, and the, the wonderful Verta Clinic in the United States, mm-hmm. who are, are getting excellent results. I was very impressed with uh, a couple of papers. One was um, from the Kaiser Permanente group in California that looked at tens of thousands of patients and their outcomes. These are diabetic patients and uh, looked at how many went into remission uh, got better and how long uh, using usual management which is basically the 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 ladder of drugs that you have to go down as you get worse and their remission rates were low single figure percentage points and they weren't sustained so that said that usual management doesn't reverse diabetes Uh, it might help a little bit uh, in slowing things up. That's about all. But then if you compare the Verte clinics figures, uh, where it's a very intense, low-carb thing, it's nicely supported. Um, the, the people in the United States have to pay for their care. But most of the people who go on the Verte clinic, not only do they lose weight and reverse their diabetes, they're saving as much in their medical bills as they're paying for the course. And their remission rates are around about 50%. I mean, it's just... Staggering, really, but what difference is that making? Not a lot yet there's there's actually there's probably a lot of vested interest involved as well people whose careers are built on uh, drug trials and issuing guidelines and what have you so yeah. yeah and drug companies selling drugs well yes but that's that's their job and they are fantastically good at it um, An analogy i've 've often um, given is. If you if you imagine diabetes is like a bath full of water that's overflowing, our uh, pharmaceutical companies and our high powered medics and what have you, they get going to install ever better plug holes to get rid of that water as quickly as they can. They're pulling the sugar out. That's they're, they're looking at the effect. But actually, the whole thing about low carb is to turn the tap off. To stop flooding the system mm-hmm. with the stuff that's overflowing, so um, so that that's really been my sort of simple approach to it.
1: Mm. And that's a really good sort of um, public health approach, or the metaphor that public health uses, obviously the upstream and the downstream as a metaphor. Yeah. So, and what we're using another metaphor is the, is the system. So you're saying it's about the inputs and the outputs. You know, the upstream and the downstream, the cause, the effect, and obviously yeah. mainly. You're saying about symptom management. We're managing the symptoms by ever increasingly trying to reduce the amount of sugar by whether it's drugs, whether it's, you know, then a mm-hmm. type 2 diabetic then has to go on to insulin, you know, that's basically the standard diabetes management is to reduce the, the amount of sugar. And yeah. mostly that's, that's four to five grams per, you know, per, you know, in our blood. Yes. But in a diabetic, it's either, you either become resistant or you become excess, you know, excess yes. sugar.
3: Yeah. Is that, most is that most right? of the, yeah, most of the medicines that are out there, I think there are seven big categories of medicines. Uh, metformin, which is the entry level thing mm. that has an effect on insulin. So that, that does work quite nicely for a while. But if you don't modify, as you put it, the upstream stuff, the causes, uh, eventually that will be overwhelmed. There are two medicines that work on glucose itself. One binds it inside the gut so you don't absorb it so much. Uh, Unfortunately, it does cause a lot of bowel problems and diarrhea and things, which isn't very pleasant. And you don't need to take that drug if you cut your carbs anyway. And the other one uh, cleverly manages to pour sugar into your urine. So you, you eat the carbs, your blood sugar goes up and a lot of it gets leaked out. As I said, this is literally a plug hole, isn't it? A fancy (laughs) plug hole. But that can cause other problems as well because, you know, if you've got a lot of sugar in your urine, you're going to get uh, infections and candida and a lot of other things.
1: Yeah, and that Mm. that actually is – these side effects aren't very pleasant, like you said, about diarrhoea and obviously you are sort of mentioning about Mm. the urinary tract infections. That sounds – or if you go on to insulin – so obviously, you're having to take insulin after or before you're eating, depending on whether you're on long or short acting. Yeah. When the inputs, just changing the upstream, the inputs, then obviously is seems a lot more logical approach. Yeah. But there's was, no 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 money in diets.
3: There's not a lot. As I was, I was saying, talking with somebody yesterday, and I, uh, I think the. the thought that came in my mind was that if you really want to sort your diabetes out you should be looking at what you do at the grocer's shop not what you do at the doctors because this it, diabetes is a natural response to the modern environment where we're we're carb heavy we're eating frequently uh, and we're eating for many more hours of the day than we used to yeah
1: how did that change your approach to general practice as a you know really you know this primary approach this prevention approach became more health-promoting and health-educating as opposed yep. to your, in your practice, you know, just giving another metformin, you know, another script. Yeah. So how did the NHS wow. approach it for you?
3: It, when I was working in Sheffield, uh, I had my own uh, group of patients that came to see me and I got known as not just the, the doc who dealt with women's problems because I did gynae before I was a GP, but also that I was very keen on dietary approaches. And so I suppose I had a self-selected group of people who would come and see me. I produced my own leaflets that they could take away, how to do it leaflets, basically. That was really where the the books came from, just writing my own information for them. So uh, yes, they found it. But again, my my own partners who could see what was happening, uh, it just didn't impinge on their practice. Uh, And they they weren't different or... Um, they were very good doctors actually but that is what we doctors are like we know we we don't change our habits very easily but no, some of my own patients uh found it very useful Uh, that was the that was the benefit of it yeah
1: so in terms of the taking on this particular lifestyle approach you know which is for in your general practice became more health education A primary approach, so primary focused. So you were doing health education, health promotion, whereas perhaps your colleagues or the standard of care was to do this prescribing approach. I suppose that's a real cognitive shift. You know, then you get Mm -hmm. into this cognitive dissonance of well, my 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 medical practice says I should be prescribing, but this perhaps this primary approach was really about the upstream.
2: Yeah
3: yeah
1: approach you're uh, saying about the
3: of course. yeah a couple of things occurred to me that I, I can remember one uh, hospital medic saying to me there's just no point going for lifestyle it never works just bang them on bet and let's go it did imp- impact on my practice actually uh, it just occurred to me I, I did a um, for some years a job working in an infertility clinic as a part-time I was a GP clinical assistant it was a probably one of my favorite jobs I really enjoyed it And my job was to see all the new patients and take their histories and sort out all the investigations. And then they'd come back and see the fertility experts for the plan of treatment. And so I was seeing, you know, everybody, which was great. And I don't know if you know much about infertility, but there's a condition called polycystic ovary syndrome, which is pretty common. And I've seen that described as the ovarian manifestation of the metabolic syndrome. I'll I'll deconstruct that. What it means is if you've got an insulin problem going on, like we see in diabetes, and like we see in many people with uh, excess weight, it can affect the ovary, and that can cause uh, a problem that you don't ovulate, you're not going to get pregnant. And uh, because because I knew that there was a link there, I would nearly always give them dietary advice while they were awaiting their blood test results to come through. I'd give them my leaflets I'd done at home. In fact, I even had the nurses coming in to say, have you got any more of your leaflets from the surgery? Because we've got some other patients who want them. And um, one of the most, it was an amazing consultation. I saw a woman once who was pretty overweight. She was about 30. She had intense polycystic ovary syndrome. And it was so intense that she'd never had a period. No, she was, she got plenty of estrogen. She was a woman. But uh, her ovarian function was so affected that she never ovulated. And I thought, you know, you've really got to look at your diet here. And so I gave her my leaflet and I gave her the the explanation. Uh, Her husband was a health professional. He bought into it too. And the low carb diet caused her menarche. That was her first period. I mean, that was really dramatic. She couldn't believe it. It, it was a sign that once you take the break off, you pull the insulin out of the system, and just allow your body to do what it does naturally. Things can start functioning, but that was a very dramatic moment. I thought. Mm-hmm. So yeah. all the PCOS, and, I would get them on a low carb diet,
1: and it's it's really interesting because the, with their blood sugar, as as they would have been high as well, so they would have been no. almost pre-diabetic. Or I know you are saying it's like diabetes in the ovaries. You know,
3: but that's, um, I, I get that. It, it, it's it's about the excessive insulin in the in the whole system. Yeah, uh, not really necessary at that moment about diabetes. Sugar. And in fact, it, it, it's, it's almost like um, a little duckling on a pond. You know, you might say, well, their sugar levels are fine. The duck looks fine, but look underneath the water, and they're paddling like mad. And most of the women with PCO uh, that I saw didn't have high blood sugars because they were youngish women. If he visited them again 10, 15 years later, I bet most of them would have been um, pre-diabetic or heading towards diabetes because the insulin response, that the body's desperation to to get blood sugars, keep them normal, um, was working at that stage. Yeah, these women had normal blood sugars. They didn't have normal insulin levels because they were having to cope with their diets. And they were youngish women and like many youngish people, um, you, you test their sugars, you don't find anything wrong. You mentioned earlier about why don't we measure insulin levels. Again, there's a big inertia thing here. If we did measure insulin levels, we would discover a lot of these people were hyperinsulinemic. They had too much of the insulin going on. So we knew that their diet was having this hormonal effect on them. And in the, the fertility clinic, women, that led that excess insulin affected their ability to ovulate it didn't affect their ability to make estrogen so they were regular women but they weren't ovulating and that was their problem and in fact uh, i've seen quite a few people who go on a low carb diet and their pco has got better and gone away
2: Mm.
3: it's fairly well known Uh, the standard treatment is to give them medications to block the estrogen and then Mm. they get a rebound ovulation but uh, that's again looking at the effects not not at the upstream thing that you mentioned.
0: So many of us could have issues going on that we don't even know about. I'm, I'm not talking about us that are low carb particularly, but in the Western world yeah. that have issues going on that we don't even know about because blood sugar is normal. Mm-hmm. HbA1c is normal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Insulin is high and we don't know.
3: I think that's quite right. Uh, the, the, the road to dia- getting type two diabetes is a very long one. And in the past, I suppose it's probably started in our late teens, early 20s, but only really manifested when we got into our 50s and 60s. And if you're looking at people who get diabetic related problems, for example, heart disease or uh, eye problems or kidney problems, by the time they've got that, they've had a sugar insulin Combination issue going on, maybe two or three or four decades. And it can be spotted early, but not by the regular tests that we do in general practice at the moment. Yeah,
2: such a shame. Mm.
1: So, if insulin is at the root of a lot of these particular problems, like Mm. Jackie's saying, it's not obviously a standard of care test on the NHS. I know that you can actually get that done privately um, Mm -hmm. through various sort of systems. Then, you know, basically, what's the role of insulin it, it can't be all bad I mean we must need <laughs> insulin for some things yeah um, you know yeah it, it does store fat so some of us need fat, I suppose
3: yeah the, the body has a whole load of systems to keep things in balance you know for example our body temperature it does unless you've got a fever or you're ill it basically stays much the same and if you get cold it'll do something to warm you up and vice versa and the same happens with sugar levels in your bloodstream. There are very tight mechanisms to keep it in a, in a normal range. Uh, if it goes low, something will liberate glucose into the bloodstream. And if it goes high, something will liberate into the bloodstream to get it down again. That's insulin. And um, insulin was there for a purpose, of course. We mentioned earlier about uh, our Paleolithic forebears, where insulin was something that was a lifesaver for them first of all it cleared excess sugar from the bloodstream on the occasions that they managed to get a high blood sugar but it then very carefully stored it away as fat for a rainy day or a dry day perhaps in some of their cases so insulin was a lifesaver back then but we're we are not hunter-gatherers with seasonal feasts and famines anymore uh, but we've still got that biology uh, grinding on. And uh, if, we, if we pour foods that are actually, the jargon word is novel, new foods, foods that weren't there in nature, and uh, a lot of the things that we eat today, they are novel foods. Lots of the, I mean, even bread is relatively new, especially in the form that we eat it now. Um, if you look at that 24 hour clock, bread appeared, you know, as I say, in the last hour before midnight. Uh, So um, we weren't evolved over all that time to to cope with the surges. And if, you know, I I used to look back before I um, found out about these things, I used to look back and before I found out about these things, I would think I was doing a good thing if I say I had a curry, uh, if I had a lot more rice than the curried meat, for example, or if I had a pasta, I had lots of pasta and a little bit of sauce. I'd say, good, good old me. I'm just keeping the fat levels down there. I must be doing some good. But in fact, I was doing completely the wrong thing. I was shoveling in uh, starchy carbohydrates. And starch, as we now know, is basically a form of sugar. It's zipped up sugar. And no matter how complex somebody tells you starch is, when it's in your stomach, it's extremely simple. And the blood sugar surges that uh, follow are, are profound. So I was, that's one of the reasons I was overweight at the time. You know, I I'd completely got the wrong thing. And um, not having any nutritional training at all in my career, none whatsoever, um, I had no idea, even though I was supposed to be a primary care physician and trying to uh, prevent disease, I got no idea what was going on. And I was not unique.
0: And many of us as patients look to our doctors for nutritional advice.
3: Yes, but unfortunately, we've been given a hymn sheet. In fact, we were given it in 1984, and we've been singing from the same one ever since. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, since we had that hymn sheet, uh, that's when the problems uh, skyrocketed. I can remember as a very junior doctor, people used to describe diabetes, type 2 diabetes, as a little touch of sugar. It was usually Mm -hmm. something that elderly people got, and those elderly people probably had elderly pancreases as well. But now, uh, with the excessive carbohydrate intake and the absolutely, you know, next step, excessive insulin secretion, you know, we're in trouble. We're getting fatter and fatter. We're getting the complications of diabetes earlier. Uh, It it is a major pandemic. Hmm.
1: The diabetes. Well, Jackie, Dr. Chris is such an interesting man, isn't
3: he? Yeah,
0: very interesting. And he's had a really long and wonderful career, really.
1: Yeah, and it's really exciting when we have uh, GPs as practitioners that are not only involved in practice, but obviously involved in research and creating and adding to the body of knowledge around low-carbohydrate approaches in a lifestyle medicine um, way. Mm.
0: And we had such a great conversation that we've had to split the episode in two. So we'll get back to Dr. Chris next week.
1: Well, I bet the listeners can't wait to, to hear the rest of his uh, his story. And um, as you said, it's going to be in the next episode. So why don't you tell us where the show notes for this
0: particular episode will be? So that's www.fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash 006. Great. Thanks, Jackie. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously and you can choose the monthly amount you wish.
1: Can you recommend a guest we can in interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation.
0: Follow us on social media. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto One. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know that you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto One and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the
1: subscribe button.